This morning we're going to go back into Acts, if you want to go to Acts 15. If we're not circumcised. I think that most of you know that I love to find videos that introduce the theme of... I did not realize... I mean, I knew that circumcision was important, and I think it is important. If I was a Jewish background believer, it'd have even more importance. But Brit Malah's ceremonies are all over YouTube. I mean, everything right there for us all to watch, these little baby boys being circumcised. I was amazed. I mean, it's like all these other festivals that we have, and it was amazing. You're wondering. You'll have to check that out. But I didn't think... Susan kept saying, I don't think we want to hear crying babies... And uh, it was amazing. It's amazing. But the question of circumcision comes up. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if you showed up this morning thinking, oh, great, we're going to talk about circumcision today. And, uh, you know, about half of us can relate to that. And the other half of us think, what in the world? Okay. Uh, But what, what the kind of what's happening is, is that Paul and Barnabas has set out and they've set out to tell the story. It's after his death and resurrection. And so basically they're going out on the first missionary journey and they have a very direct message. The message is Jesus is alive. And the message is Jesus is king. And the message is the kingdom of God is arriving. And if you just break it down, those three things, that's the message that you find again and again and again that the apostles are delivering to their generation. Now, as they do that, when they say Jesus is king, that gets translated into the Greek and Roman world as Jesus is Lord. Curios. And that, and, I mean, that begins to really conflict with the Roman empires because it's Caesar that is Lord, not Jesus. And then there's still this rub with the Jewish established community because if Jesus is king, if you're saying that Jesus is king, then he's the divine son. That means that he's the son of God. So when Jesus is Messiah, you're saying that he's the son of God. And the Jewish communities all over Asia Minor are still taking issue with that. So you kind of have this tension But we come to the end of the first missionary journey that set off from Antioch in Syria. It went to Barnabas' home, Cyprus first. That was interesting. And then it traveled up into Asia Minor, Turkey. And if you notice, as they got down to Derby, they're close to Tarsus. Tarsus is Paul's hometown. So basically, Barnabas and Paul said, hey, let's go visit the nations that we're most interested in as the Holy Spirit leads us. And they get back to Antioch this way, Acts 14, 26 to 28. Finally, they made it to Italia and they caught a ship back to Antioch, where it all started, launched by God's grace and now safely home by God's grace. A good piece of work. On arrival, they got the church together. They reported on their trip, telling in detail how God had used them to throw the door of faith wide open so people of all nations could come streaming in. Then they settled down for a long, leisurely visit with the disciples. 
the door of faith is wide open. But again, there's still this tension that continues in the conversation about the announcement of Jesus, alive, royalty, his kingdom. And that is, is this a message for all the people on the planet, or is it a message for Israel? Is it all the pieces of the puzzle, or is it just one piece of the puzzle? And that tension is still there as we read the story. So that long, leisurely wait, the telling of their story, the adventure, just like we're inviting Alyssa to tell us about what Africa was like, same thing that, let me tell you what happened. Well, that was quickly interrupted, Acts 15.1. It wasn't long before some Jews showed up from Judea insisting that everyone be circumcised. If you're not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. Our hot button is not circumcision. So, so I don't lose you for the next few minutes. Let's see if we can t- talk about something that would, you know, it might really touch. It's a parallel to what's going on in the story. So I'm going to invite you. Have you ever heard someone say, if you're not, fill in the blank, you're not saved? Chad, you have one? You kind of shrugged your shoulder like, I got one. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. Dorothy. If you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, probably more Lord, not Lord and Savior, but Lord. Master, Lord. If you don't understand the full ramification, you can't be saved. Beth, if you don't go to church, you can't be saved. Yes? Okay, if you do not speak in tongues, you aren't saved. If you're not producing fruit, some of us are going, what? Do I have to have fruit trees? What? You aren't saved. Anybody else? A couple more. If you don't ask for forgiveness, you aren't saved. Okay, if you're not like a child, you aren't saved. So we, we have, I mean, I, mean, we could, I mean, we get that, don't we? I mean, well, that's part of, I mean, every one of us at some point in our life, we've had a challenge where you... You're not saved because you haven't done something or this hasn't manifested in your life. So the issue here is there's some Jewish followers. They would be Jewish background believers. They would be new in following Jesus. They show up in Antioch. They're now in Syria. They've traveled from Jerusalem and they show up and they're simply saying, if Gentiles... If you're you're saying that Gentiles are starting to follow Jesus, if these Gentiles, if if you're saying that, then they've got to be circumcised. If Gentiles are not circumcised, 
according to the law of Moses, then they can't be saved. Now, I, I don't know if I'm the only one in the room that's curious, but I'm kind of curious that in their mind they made a connection between circumcision and salvation. Did, did anybody, anybody else curious about that? I mean, what, what, is, is there a connection between circumcision and salvation in your mind? In their mind, there is. So that, I became curious about that. And there'll be a reason why I became curious of that. If you back into the Old Testament, you find out that circumcision begins to appear first in the life of Abraham. Circumcision was practiced in Egypt. It's kind of interesting. But in Genesis 17, if you go back and read the story, Elohim, God Almighty, invited Abraham into a covenant, and the sign of that covenant would be circumcision. So circumcised at 99, Abraham entered that covenant. If you go further in the story, you find out with Moses this kind of interesting conversation about circumcision of the first son of Moses. And and there's a sign there of redemption in the circumcision. That's in Exodus 4, just a few verses. And then if you keep traveling through the Old Testament... You come down to Jeremiah, and he's talking more symbolically, figuratively, about the circumcision of the heart, Jeremiah 9. Paul will pick that up in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, circumcision becomes something that is physical, a sign of the covenant, a sacrifice of redemption, and also figurative, a circumcision of the heart. In the history of Judaism, so now I'm kind of trying to find out, well, because these are Jews from Judea in the first century, like what was going on in Judaism that would lead them to understand something from the Old Testament getting translated into their life? Now, this is, I'm, this is just a possibility. This is one understanding. This is not the, I'm not preaching the gospel truth. Just kind of curious. Circumcision is a traditional and primitive rite. It would have been practiced among those that were following the Lord from the time of Abraham on. But possibly, it's possible that initially it was very loosely connected with Israel's belief in the Lord, not essentially related to faith in the Lord, and it gradually does become embedded in Israel's life of faith. That's a possibility. Now, it becomes interesting because you can begin to go through history and see how it becomes embedded in the life of Israel and the faith of Israel during the rabbinic period, which would have been the period that would have taught those that came to Antioch and thought there's a connection between circumcision and salvation. So beginning in the 600s B.C., remember the Assyrians? Remember the first deportation? Do you remember that there was this this removal from the land? Hey, if if you're not going to obey the covenant, I'm going to remove you from the land. And so you have a wave of Israelites that go out of the land 
into Samaria. And they begin to look, what's, what, you know, gosh, things are not going well for us. We have disobeyed the covenant. God is disciplining us. And now we're mingling with others. So what will set us apart? Well, one of the things that begin to set the Jew apart from the Samaritan was circumcision. The rite of circumcision. And then the 300s B.C., you have the Greek Empire. So you have in the history of Israel, you have... You have these forces, maybe you could even call them forces of secularization coming against a very religious community. And so you begin to see, for the first time, tremendous emphasis on circumcision is the sign of the covenant between Jews and Elohim. And then there was a little bit of a relief. The Greeks kind of went away. And there was another group that came forward. And there began to be mass circumcisions. Judaism within the land became compulsory. And the whole idea was the land is holy, which means no uncircumcised Gentiles need to live here. Only circumcised Jews need to live in the land. That's only a hundred years before. These Jews are coming to Antioch. And so then in the 200s, so now we've passed over the event, within Palestinian Judaism, circumcision is understood purely as a physical act. There's no more figurative circumcision of the heart. The emphasis is on the right of circumcision. Now, as you look at that history, you begin then to see that the rabbis are talking about this. So here's some interesting comments, just passing them along, trying to give us a context. Because of it, because of it, God undertook to protect his people and gave them the land of Israel. The life-giving power of circumcision is everywhere at work in the universe and in history. In the coming eon, Israel will be redeemed from Gehenna, hell, in virtue of it, and will participate in the joys of the Messianic age because of it, the it being circumcision. He who invalidates the sign, interestingly, when the Romans come along, and really the Greeks as well, and they begin, you know, sport, athletics begin to be a big deal. I mean, we're going to watch the Spurs this afternoon, right? And we're going to read them on you. And then we're still addicted to sports. It's just that our players keep their clothes on. In the Greek and Roman games, they, the guys participated without any clothes on. You know, they were unhindered when they ran. So if you were circumcised, it kind of stood out. And so there were actually those... Jews who were embarrassed by that, so there was a medical procedure that would reverse it. Interesting. So he who invalidates the sign by this breaks the covenant and loses the salvation mediated thereby. Finally, only physical circumcision mediates salvation in this world in the next. So you see 
those Jews who started to follow Jesus in Judea in the first century have been taught by a rabbinic tradition that connects physical circumcision with salvation in this life and the age to come. So they're just coming up to Antioch out of the context of what they've been taught. You've got to be circumcised or you will not be saved. No wonder. That's what they'd been taught. That was their tradition. However, there's a time to protest. And Barnabas and Paul, both being circumcised Jews. Barnabas was a Levite priest who was following Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee who was following Jesus. Both had been circumcised. And yet, when fellow Jews came who were following Jesus, speaking of this theology, speaking of this rabbinic understanding, they both immediately stood up and they protested. When is it time to protest when others insist that something denies our recent experience? Paul and Barnabas had just returned from a missionary journey throughout Asia Minor, and they'd seen hundreds, if not thousands, of Gentiles, uncircumcised people come to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit filled them. The gift of tongues came through them to validate what God was doing, and they stood up and said, No, that cannot be. These people are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen it. No, No, it doesn't match our experience at all. They also stood up when others insist we must do something in addition to. We must do something in addition to a sincere response of faith in order to receive the gift of salvation. Paul and Barnabas went out knowing we we have this gift that Jesus has given to us And we don't need to add anything to it. All we're asking people to do is respond by faith, respond by trust to what Jesus has done for us, and the salvation is a gift. They protest when others insist that new covenant believers revert to following the old covenant, as if the old covenant takes precedence over the new covenant. The new covenant fulfills the old. Yes, there's truth that is universal. It's global. It's going to come out of the old covenant. It's going to be completed by the new covenant. But if you're asking me to go back under the old covenant as precedence over the... No, no, no. We don't do that. When others insist that their cultural interpretation, heritage, and practice be enforced globally. I think it would be fair to say that the Jews in Judea that were following Jesus that came to insist that the Gentiles be circumcised are really speaking out of their culture. They're speaking out of their heritage. And they're speaking out of their practice, which has been going on for about 400 years. 
And that's what they're speaking more out of their understanding, their interpretation, and they're insisting that everybody has to follow that practice. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, no. Finally, when others insist that we convert to a historic religion rather than simply following Jesus. One way to understand you must be circumcised or you won't be saved is you must convert to Judaism. That's one way to understand it. So if you're going to follow Jesus, then you've got to become a Jew first. And the way you become a Jew is you go through the rite of circumcision... Then you become a Jew. Now you can follow Jesus. And again, no, no, no. You see, for a community like us, where this touches us is that we live in a world that needs to hear about the salvation that Jesus has provided just as much, if not more, than the generation that Paul and Barnabas are going to. And if we're going to be people that deliver that message, then we, we got to get it straight. We can't confuse it. And obviously, by the comments that have been made, there is confusion. What must we do to be saved? Well, let's start with this. Salvation is God's gift to give. If I'm reading the story right, and please... If you don't think I'm reading the story right, you can, we can have a conversation. I'm not above correction. But the way I'm reading the story is that God's salvation is his gift to give. And he wants to give He wants to give that to all of humanity. This is my gift. I want to give it to you. And the means of receiving God's gift of salvation is God's to determine. Think about that for a moment. The means of receiving God's gift of salvation is God's to determine. I don't need to determine how you're going to receive the gift of salvation. I need to go back to the story and read it and reread it and read it and reread it till I understand that God not only has provided this gift of salvation, but He's also determined how humanity is to receive that gift. It's on His terms. Salvation is on God's terms. It's not, we, we don't have control of it. God's Salvation is his response to our disobedience, not our obedience. Again, read the story. Jesus saves those that are disobedient, not those that are obedient. It is not the well who need a doctor. It's the sick. One of the guys that go back in the history of River City Vineyard is Mark Fleeman. And Mark is one of the three people that our family grieved. Mark passed, mid-50s, don't know, just... He passed. And I remember when Mark first told us his story... 
Mark was a guy that kind of lived on the edge in lots of different ways. But he remembered before he knew Jesus that he took some LSD. And in taking that LSD, Jesus came to him and said, Hey, Mark, let me show you what hell's going to be like. And it was a trip of all trips. And when he came off of that LSD, he was thoroughly, completely saved, committed to Jesus, never played with LSD again. Because he showed him what hell was going to be like. When I listened to Mark's story, it was just like this light bulb went off. You know, you know, that, you know that is a great story to remember because God saves the disobedient. God saves us when we're at our worst. God's not saying, okay, now clean up your act. Oh, but Garrett, it's going to take you a long time to clean up your act. You know, so, but I'll be patient. Just keep, okay, keep working on cleaning up your act. When you get your act clean, you know, you know, I kind of expect like 100%, then I'll save you. No. Our disobedience is what invites God's mercy. Finally, once received by faith expressed in Jesus. Once received by faith expressed in Jesus. Jesus, I believe you are my Savior. Jesus, I believe you forgive me of my sins because you have paid the price for my sins. Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah. Jesus, I believe you are the King. Jesus, I believe that your kingdom has arrived and it's arriving. Once received by faith expressed in Jesus, salvation is for living both now And later. Salvation impacts life now in this present evil age and in the age to come. Salvation is not just about the future. It's very much about now. How we live our life now. And how we'll live our life later. Saved. Are you saved? Do you know that Jesus offers each of us and all of us salvation? Salvation. Not based on what we do or don't do. Not based upon our our lineage, not based upon our religion, simply purely based upon what Jesus has accomplished and what he wants to give to us. Would you like to stand with me? I believe this word, I believe this passage, I believe 
the direct, the direct, you know, what does Jesus want to do with this in our lives? It's, I think it's twofold. One of, I mean, each of us, I mean, this is a, there's a very personal transaction that goes on between me and Jesus. I'm one of those, I have the very good fortune is I, I vividly remember the moment of my salvation. 17 years old, in the Reedus' living room. I mean, I, I, rem- I could tell you the whole story, I won't. But I vividly remember that. I know that some of us have been brought up and the light has gotten brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Then we realize, oh, Jesus is my Savior. But each of those experiences, whether it's sudden or whether it's gradual, it's personal. It's between you and Jesus. And I have to ask you, do you know that you know that you know that you, by simple trust in Jesus, have received the gift of salvation that he wants to give to you? And if there is this lingering doubt, I don't know, it may be connected with the confusion of the message that was going on in Paul and Barnabas's day and what goes on on our day. And this morning would be a great day to like erase that confusion. And so I want to invite anyone, if you've never, ever said, yeah, I really want Jesus to save me, you can say that today. And he'll do that today. Then the other thing is that we as a community of people would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us, that we would deliver this message of salvation to our generation without confusion. And so if you just sense that, man... I seem to just mumble my way through when I start telling people about Jesus and salvation. I just blah, 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 blah. maybe there is you know there's a lot of pushback. Sometimes we start talking about Jesus and salvation and forgiveness. Wisdom. Do we need wisdom? Holy Spirit, give us wisdom. Empower us. To know what to say, how much to say, when to say. I mean, those seem to be the, the ways that we can really serve one another and be in step with what Jesus wants to do through us with this truth. So let me say a general prayer. And then if you would like to respond to either of those two invitations, just telling somebody for the first time that I really want Jesus to save me and I'm not sure he has. Or I really want to be empowered to deliver his message by the Spirit. Then you know, we can minister to one another over in our kingdom time. Okay? All right. Hmm. Jesus, I, I can only say thank you. I'm just so grateful. That at some point in eternity past, you said to your father, yes, father, I'll go. I will deliver salvation to humanity that is lost and can never save itself. Jesus, thank you for the personal visit. Thank you that you did not deliver our religion to us. You delivered yourself to us. Thank you that you did not come with a list of ten things that we must do. You came with one. 
believe, trust, have confidence in me. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, help each one of us to be honest with you and honest with ourselves. Do we know our Savior? Do we know that we have received by a simple expression of faith the most precious gift that we could ever receive, the gift of salvation? And help us to be honest with our inability, in and of our own self. We, ha- we're just, we are not able to deliver this message to our generation. For, for those of us that really are at, at this place where we, oh, please help, empower me. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring your power, bring your wisdom, bring your words. Empower me to deliver this message. Let, just identify us and let us receive ministry today. For your sake for your message, for your kingdom. In your name I pray, amen.